1: Welcome to the Crux. Good morning, Gary.
2: Hey there, Mike. Good to see you. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you.
1: Good, 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 good. Well, Gary, I guess today is kind of old home week. We get to speak with the former (laughs) CEO of GE and your former boss, Jeff Immelt. And he has a new book out, Hot Seat. So looking forward to that.
2: Yeah, and I feel like these days, Mike, whether like I should be in an old home. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) well, let's go on to the news. A lot of interesting items that I think communicators would be interested in. One actually begins with former President Trump's election lawyer Sydney Powell you remember she was one of the one of the ones along with Rudy Giuliani who had challenged all the presidential election results in multiple states and federal courts well she's arguing now or her lawyers are arguing now in a court filing that no reasonable person would believe her election fraud claims so it's just amazing to me. I mean, what's happened is the election infrastructure company Dominion Voting Systems, which right. was, you know, falsely accused of even operating out of Venezuela, I think, in in, in some of their protestations. That's right. I've but, forgotten that. You know, but they sued Sidney Powell for defamation after she pushed all these lawsuits. And Dominion claims that Powell knew her election fraud accusations were false and hurtful to the company. And, and now in this court filing, Powell's attorneys write that she was simply sharing her opinion mm-hmm. and that the public could reach their own conclusions about whether votes were changed by election machines. Indeed, even the plaintiffs themselves, they argue, characterized the statements at issue as wild accusations and outlandish. Congressman Peter Meyer from Michigan, One of the Republicans, by the way, who voted to impeach Trump in January after the January 6th Capitol insurrection tweeted that Powell's argument is pathetic. Her attorneys claim she had a right to make accusations because she was acting as an attorney for the Trump campaign. As a result, Powell is asking a judge in Washington, D.C. to dismiss the case or to allow it to be moved to a federal court in Texas. It seems as though now... That she is being prosecuted on these charges by Dominion. That you know, she's essentially saying, "I didn't mean it. I was just kidding. It was ludicrous to begin with." Gary, no. should Sydney Powell get a get out of jail free card?
2: No, you know, Mike. I, I think the answer is definitely not. What was the other monopoly card? Go directly to jail. Do not pass the, <laughs> you know. I, Look, here's the thing: is it wasn't just opinion it was demonstrably wrong facts. And those, the iteration of those facts over and over again in lawsuits and on television and to other journalists had a consequence, which was the attack. I don't think you could, anybody with any kind of judgment deny that it didn't have a role in a deadly attack on our democratic system in our capital. So I just think it's an important case because we live in an age of misinformation disinformation, purposeful lying, that's easy to spread and easy to influence people with. And I I think she has to bear a cost for that. That's my point of view. Not the opinion, but demonstrably wrong facts that were used to underpin this campaign.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think we've come to an age where people, if they think it advances their cause, it's all right to sacrifice corrosion of public trust mm-hmm. and corrosion of our public institutions. I think there needs to be a price paid for those who seek to undermine what is most dear in a democracy.
2: Well said, well said.
1: So former President Trump was in the news this past week in yet another way, and that is on Fox News's program, Media Buzz, Trump's spokesperson and and longtime advisor, Jason Miller, told the host, Howard Kurtz, that Trump will be returning to social media in two or three months. And gotta keep in mind, you know, Trump got banned from Twitter and Facebook, you know, after the U.S. Capitol insurrection. Well, as it turns out, what Miller is saying is that, Trump is going to create his own platform. Now, Miller said it's gonna completely redefine the game and everybody is going to wanna to see what exactly President Trump does. So, so Gary, he said everybody, are you going to want to see what the former president does? Are you missing his tweets? And, and what do you make of this, assuming it's true that Trump is going to establish his own social media platform?
2: Well, you know, I'll, it's both personal and a broader answer, Mike. It, it, my first answer is no, I don't miss anything. <laughs> and by the way, they haven't really gone away. If you've been following the news, you know that the president is putting out statements on letterhead that are just in and of themselves tweets. Right, it's just, yeah. but he's, yeah. and then other people put them on Twitter for him, you know. So, it, it, it's kind of ridiculous to say he's being muzzled in that, which I've seen on some some media programs. It will be interesting. It will have a big following, you, you know. The support that he has among Republicans is still very high. I don't necessarily think it'll be the truth, and and that's just built on on the record, you know. And I I wonder if Twitter should let him back on. I mean, he's not in a position of power. He certainly is in an influence of a position of influence. So I, it'll be interesting. It'll get a following. Will it advance the cause of constructive dialogue in this country? No. <laughs>
1: well, you, you know, I, I mean, it's it's interesting. I, I am totally amazed at how social media has evolved, where now you have people on both sides of the coin, unfortunately, simply almost trolling for extreme audiences, it, it's it's kind of the equivalent of, of one putting their hair on fire in order to grab attention, or as, as we used to say, you know, decades ago, that the only reason people watch stock car racing was <laughs> anticipating, you know, a, a, a crash. But well, it,
2: have you followed Twitter this week, Mike, with the ever given, you know, the oh, tell, the, tell us about that. The, this tell us about gigantic it. container ship. <laughs> And it's a serious issue, I don't mean to yeah, diminish yeah, it because yeah. it affects supplies globally and in that region as well. You know, it gets stuck, it's as tall, if it were stood on its end, as tall as the Umpire State Building, one of these giant container ships, runs aground in the narrow section
1: of the Suez. And so nothing can get through, right?
2: Nothing can get through, it's sort of, you know, sort of wedged in there. <laughs> and, and Twitter had so much fun with that. I mean, again, a serious issue. And it was this little one man with one backhoe trying to dig out this gigantic (laughs) ship. Now, they eventually have gotten it out since then, but there are some things that Twitter are good for, and some of the humor around this. You know, someone said, Look, I don't mean to tell you how to do your job, but maybe you ought to get a second backhoe (laughs) or (laughs)
1: something. Well, another thing that got some interest this past week on social media. Is, is, is that Krispy Kreme, looking for some good publicity, mm-hmm. decided it would offer free donuts as kind of a fun brand building incentive for people to go get vaccinated for COVID-19. And instead, it seems like comedians and health experts have had a field day. The way the program works is customers who show a valid vaccination card for the COVID-19 vaccination, They get a free Krispy Kreme original glazed donut throughout 2021. And (laughs) I can remember even getting those donuts as a kid. I love them. Oh, yeah. But a number of medical experts took to Twitter, including this this Dr. Uh, Asim Maholtra, and he tweeted high blood glucose, even in non diabetics, drive high glycemic index carbs. I mean, it, it goes on, but but it, yeah. but a bit, but essentially is you know how could you in at, while we're trying to solve one medical crisis seemingly be <laughs> abetting another? In, in fact, comedian Trevor Noah on The Daily Show quipped, "If you don't qualify yet, don't worry. Krispy Kreme still offers affordable pre-existing conditions." <laughs> So Krispy Kreme said the campaign is simply meant to sweeten people's lives as the country accelerates to put the virus behind us. Uh, Gary, first in your days as a communicator, have you ever seen a promotional effort your company was involved mm. in missed the mark? And then given the specific case of Krispy Kreme and the offer of a free donut for getting vaccinated, is this truly a sweet promotion or is it a non-starter?
2: You know, Mike, that's an interesting question. You know, working for GE, it was hard to give away jet engines or something like that. You know, <laughs> I think we at one point tried to give away compact fluorescent light bulbs as a part of eco-imagination. And I think it tanked. I think people, you know, I don't know why why that happened. And there was concern about those bulbs and some of the disposal things, but I, I can't remember. In the case, I think everybody should just calm down. You know, if people want donuts, I think Krispy Kreme, it, look, you're talking about Krispy Krispy Kreme. So, from that their point of view, good. And yeah. I, I did read a story that the average American put on two pounds a month during the yeah. pandemic. And I just want to tell everybody, our listeners,
1: that's that more did, than COVID nineteen.
2: Yeah, but, <laughs> <laughs> that I did better. I did better than the average American. All
1: right, all right.
2: <laughs> so I will not be going to Krispy Kreme for these free donuts.
1: Yeah. Yeah. on the on the other side of that you know it's interesting well, years ago when I was effectively the chief communications officer at uh, State Farm we did have a bit of an issue where we had done some advertising and the ad showed a guy who was cycling in to work mm-hmm. and the storyline was essentially he was cycling into work because he couldn't afford the auto insurance for his car and 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 you know so, get state farm it's good insurance and 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 it's less expensive than you think is kind of the underlying message and and it was cute and it was kind of funny the way it was portrayed but online we got really beat up about the fact that cyclists were offended you know there's so many people in different communities that cycle into work and we actually did some survey research, and the ad actually got pulled down. I, I think the lesson in all of that is you know, when we do test, ta- when we do look at promotions in even advertising, no matter how clever they are, we probably need to do more than test our gut and yeah. at least to see if there are any critical audiences that might be looking at this quite another way. Definitely, definitely. So, another Interesting piece of news that happened this week is we're in the world right now of people getting vaccinated and, and and people making claims about vaccination. Is early this past week, AstraZeneca had hoped to build confidence in its vaccine. You know, keep in mind you already had Moderna, you already had Pfizer, you already have Johnson and Johnson J&J, out there with that, yeah. you know. But anyway, they were trying to build Confidence in, in their vaccine entry. And they announced that predom- a predominantly US study of 32,000 volunteers showed its vaccine was 79% effective in preventing COVID 19, and that none of their vaccinated volunteers suffered any severe illnesses mm-hmm. or had any hospitalizations. So, pretty good. But within 24 hours of that announcement, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, issued a statement saying the independent monitors that oversaw the study had expressed concern that AstraZeneca may have included outdated information from that trial, which may have provided an incomplete view of the efficacy of the data. So the independent panel essentially was suggesting that the company might be guilty of cherry picking data according to senior administration officials. The panel wrote to AstraZeneca and U.S. health leaders that it was concerned that the company chose to use the data that it did and also commented that decisions like this are what erode public trust in Mm. the scientific process. Now, you know, uh, AstraZeneca did respond, said it was working on, you know, more up-to-date information that more recent findings are consistent with its initial announcement that the vaccine offered provides strong protection. Gary, you and I have both worked on business related things that government action plays into While we do not know exactly all the facts related to this and what AstraZeneca was doing and when it did it, other than trying to, you know, they were trying to clearly put their best foot forward, are are there things they could have done to avoid this kind of public misstep? And given the sensitivity to vaccines in general, that are rolling out to the public, could NIH or the independent panel that that it was looking at, could they have done something different than creating this kind of, you know, noise in the marketplace?
2: Well, you know, Mike, this just, whatever the motivation, erodes trust in something that people had questions about from the start, which is vaccination and its safety. And I would just say I had ray jordan from moderna in my crisis class last Mm -hmm. week and he just talked about their total commitment from the beginning to transparency Mm -hmm. releasing the protocols mike through which they were developing the vaccine releasing clear numbers on the trials and the people in it and it paid off for them right people uh, trusted it and look this problem with they've had problems at astrazeneca prior to this Mm-hmm. And it has real consequences. The rollout of the vaccine in continental Europe has been, you know, not good
1: mm-hmm.
2: and and created some further lockdowns. Uh, my my lesson here is just transparency, being clear about what, where the data is from and rolling it out in a way that said, look, this is outdated. We're going to update it as soon as we possibly can. It made me think, Mike, you know, data is so important and the idea that it's fungible and changeable. I remember during the BP Gulf crisis,
1: they
2: they had these charts that showed the amount of oil that they had recovered Mm -hmm. and the charts went, you know, went, you know, up, 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 up. And they were daily charts. Well, those weren't what they recovered every day. That was the cumulative number. Mm -hmm. And they didn't say that. Right. So it looked like they were succeeding, you know, at a level that they actually was misleading. Yeah. So that's what I, you know, uh, I don't know all the situation here, but I just fall back on Ray Jordan's great advice. We were going to be as transparent as we possibly could.
1: Yeah, I I think, too, I mean, I've I've worked in government as as, as you have, but I, I, I do think that there is... An obligation, particularly when we get to sensitive issues like vaccines which are actually going to be you know put into individuals' bodies, they need to take a special level, level yeah, of good care point. about both communication as well as you know public safety. So uh, one just wonders, you know, and I'm in the cheap seats right now on this one, that I wonder if there could have been better communication between the U.S. health officials and AstraZeneca before it created some consternation in the marketplace.
2: Interesting. Interesting.
1: So lastly, uh, another thing kind of interested me in the news, primarily because I have worked for companies that did business in in China. But it's been interesting to see that in retaliation for recent sanctions by the US, the United Kingdom, and the European Union based on increasing concerns about forced labor camps in Xinjiang in China, the People's Republic of China has stirred up now a nationalistic backlash against Western brands like H&M, Nike, Gap, Adidas, or they say in Europe, Adidas, Zara, and New Balance, all companies that have publicly announced in the past that they do not source cotton or textile products from Xinjiang. And the story behind the story here is that there have been a number of human rights groups that have repeatedly accused Beijing of detaining Uyghurs, a Muslim minority group, as well as other Muslim groups in the region, about forcing them into re-education camps and using them as forced labor. And then on the company side, you know, you do have companies trying to be responsible like H&M that have said you know we strictly prohibit any type of forced labor in our supply chain regardless of the country or region and on their website you know it says they don't work with any garment factories in Xinjiang similarly Nike says they're concerned about reports about forced labor and again they say none of its supply of textiles or yarn are from that region of China. And while most of these brands have adhered to their principles and their purpose, they're they're now the victims of backlash in Chinese social media. And people are saying, you know, that this is just piling on. These are people being anti-Chinese. And a a number of these companies are being targeted for boycotts on Weibo and other social media. H&M itself, has been pulled from a number of major e-commerce stores in China like Alibaba and JD.com. And, and even some Chinese actors have made a point very publicly where they've been brand ambassadors for these companies, for these Western brands. They've actually cut ties with these brands. Uh, and then on the other hand, Chinese companies are trying to play you know, hometown heroes and talk about the fact that, you know, their products actually have cotton made in Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. And even a Japanese retailer, Muji, has begun to advertise in China that its products are made with Xinjiang cotton. So Gary, you work for a great global brand in GE, and we're going to talk to its former CEO, your former boss, Jeff Mm -hmm. Immelt in a moment. But when you were at GE, were there times when, what you stood for as a company was at times at odds or not fully appreciated in other parts of the world.
2: You know, Mike, I think this is an area where American companies really have to take a look at their risk assessment capabilities and processes to make sure it's they're including all this. Uh, I'll give you a a couple of examples really quickly. The Olympics, the Olympic Games, GE, a big sponsor, NBC, a broadcaster. We always ran into these issues in 2008. The Games, Summer Games were in Beijing. And some activists, including Mia Faro, used your brand as leverage to try to pressure the Chinese to get out of Darfur, where there was a genocide going on, and alleged that the Chinese had a role in it. So it wasn't that we were doing anything wrong in Darfur, it was that we were supporting a games that were being held in China. And that issue will now come up for the Olympic sponsors for the winter games that are now being held in Beijing, remarkably. And similarly, when we spoke out as GE on LGBTQ rights, people said, whoa, wait a minute, you do business in Russia where it's actually illegal in some cases to come out in that sense. It's so it's so difficult. And as a company, you have to put your values first. Yep. But at the same time, you have to also help people to understand or at least talk to people about the value that your presence in China or Russia or wherever it might be yep. has in opening the country up to better processes, demanding more on labor or whatever issues. But it's it is a central challenge for global companies that is only going to get more intense over the coming days coming years
1: yeah yeah and i agree with that i think that as supply chains get more global for companies there are multiple challenges i mean even down to you know what's the environmental standard to do certain things yeah in different parts of Latin America versus Europe and the United States, or what's the standard in parts of Africa or parts of, of Asia, particularly Southeast Asia, it introduces another level of complexity. And when I was at Cargill, we got into very long and serious conversations around, you know, do you play to the lowest common denominator where you're where, where your sourcing product or is there a global Cargill standard? Yeah, and, and I think more and more European and US companies and, and, and North American companies have, have kind of taken the pose that they've got to go to a common global standard and not just play to the lowest common denominator. I think that there's a, another challenge though too is that you know socially there are certain things that are more accepted maybe in Western democracy that aren't necessarily as accepted in other parts of the world. And sometimes those uh, bump up against even religious practices. Absolutely. I remember famously in my last year at Cargill, our CEO at the at the time, Dave McClennan, who's still the CEO there, he and his family marched in a gay pride parade in Minneapolis and just showing support for yeah. The, the pride group at, at Cargill, but show, showing, you know, commitment of the company to diversity and inclusion. Well, you know, a lot of the places where Cargill operates also <laughs> yes. have large populations of Muslims and in countries where their laws are such that they are actually not conducive to being inclusive of gay rights. Uh, in, in fact, we had an employee who had acted up at the work site after hearing of all this okay. in Russia. Wow. So so, so it, it does mean one needs, if you work in a large organization, if you go in as a chief communications officer, if you go in as a senior executive, that it's all right to have your principles, all right to have your values. You just need to understand what the implications of that are. So on one hand, there was kind of this good news story around sourcing in terms of, you know, yes, uh, you know, it makes sense to play to a larger standard. Although obviously what we saw in the case of China in these Western brands, it didn't work out so well. And then Cargill trying to do the right thing in terms of having an inclusive environment actually had to pay for it in other ways in other markets based on religion and and local practice. Anyway, one last thing, Gary, before we go on to Jeff. Oh, yeah. And, And that is this week. Major League Baseball is starting its season. You know, we're going to have double headers. will now be two seven-inning games. Extra innings will begin with a runner on second. The season will begin with COVID-19 protocols in place. But we're going to play a full 162-game schedule. But the big question, the big question, and we've done this in two years past. So, Gary? How many games are our beloved New York Yankees going to win this
2: year? I'm going to go, Mike, I, I, I think they've got some fundamental roster weaknesses. I'm going 93 games.
1: Ah. See, I thought I, w- I might end up being the low guy on the totem pole this year because each time we've done this, I actually went something over 100. You're more 100. optimistic. You're more I was optimistic. more optimistic. But, you know, I, I, I've, I've been troubled by what I saw of their pitching yeah. during the, the spring training. Right, now, yeah. spring training is not a season, but we'll see. But as a consequence of all of that, I've got them still a little higher than you at 97 games. All so right. I'll mark that down. You've got 93. I've got 97. We'll check it at the end of the season.
2: Beautiful. In our 53rd episode of The Crocs, we welcome Jeff Immelt, the former CEO of GE and today a venture partner at New Enterprise Associates and an instructor at the Stanford Global School of Business. Jeff has a new book, Hot Seat, What I Learned Leading a Great American Company. It's part memoir, part leadership book, a raw and honest look at the ups and downs of Jeff's tenure as CEO. The thing I like about the book is it really puts you in the CEO's chair, as Jeff leads the company through the 9-11 attack, the global financial crisis, and the nuclear disaster in Japan, to name a few challenges. During this highly volatile period for business and the global economy, Jeff was also changing GE from a company known for management expertise to one that was better with the customer, a leader in technology, and more global. We'll discuss the role of communications and culture, and Jeff's tenure at GE and how leaders should be thinking about those topics today. Full disclosure: I have worked with Jeff since he left GE, as many of you know, and have helped him to promote Hotzi. Jeff, welcome to the Crux.
0: Hey, thanks, Gary. So it's gonna uh, be it's gonna be awesome to be grilled by you and, and Mike. So <laughs> like, that's what I was like. looking forward to.
2: It's not the first time I've grilled you and Mike I and know. as well. Uh, I'm
1: actually looking forward to, grill it, to grilling <laughs> Gary. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I could use it about this point. And by the way, congratulations on Hot Seat. It's doing well. Lots of good reviews, lots of good endorsements. Recently, you know, Bill Gates has become sort of the, you know, the expert on what books you should be reading. And, and he put Hot Seat on his list of the best three books he's read recently. So congratulations mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, great. So you've, look, you've answered the question many, many times on why you wrote the book, and I know one of the reasons is to tell the GE story to GE people. What did you hope employees and former employees would take away from your book? Yeah, you know, Gary, so
0: I I didn't rush into this. I took my time. After I retired in 2017, I needed time to think and you know, think about what I'd learned and and done right and done wrong. So I didn't rush into it, but I was, I was not comfortable. I I was unhappy with the way the company was being covered. I I felt like it was incomplete and not fair. And sometimes people look, I, as you all know, Kerry, I've been criticized for 25 years, right? Really. You know, to a certain extent I'm good at it, but, but they don't just criticize me. They criticize, you know, you and I worked with 500,000 people. Right, and I felt like their work didn't deserve this, and and didn't they they had done a lot of good things. We weren't perfect, but I, I felt like a more complete story just needed to be told for all of us who who lived this experience together. And and since I've written the book, Gary, I've had a tremendous outreach on LinkedIn and direct emails of employees, even people that didn't necessarily like me or agree with me, mm-hmm. who said, "Thanks for writing this story. Thanks yeah. for." Thanks for writing the story thanks for doing it the way you did it and you know we wanted the complete truth to to get out there so i think that's really why i did it uh, gave all the money to my high school so it was never about i'm, I'm happy with what i'm doing now it wasn't about you know kind of like rejuvenating myself or making money this was really about and something i hope we talk about more is that sometimes leaders if you're reflective enough and you're honest enough with yourself you you've earned the right to correct the narrative and, and hopefully that's what we have tried to do here.
2: So so Jeff, you, as you said, you stayed quiet for a while after you, you left GE, and sort of, we've talked about this a lot, a, a narrative did sort of calcify around the company, particularly. Do you wish you had spoken out sooner? That's a really great question. I think the answer is probably yes, Gary. You know, in other
0: words, I, I kept You know, I wasn't in it day to day. I wanted to give the new team a chance to do it their way. I kept waiting for the board or somebody in management to say, "Hey, wait a second. We were there. This is wrong. This isn't what happened." And after two or three years, I just became convinced that wasn't gonna that wasn't (laughs) gonna happen. Right. And and I don't say it because it hurt me. It hurt. It hurt the company. You know. In other words, I I always put try. To put things through a prism of the company, and you know, I I think Gary, look, we we've lost a generation of finance people. You know, we're no longer considered to be the partner of choice in the inner, you know, power sector, things like that. So it wasn't really about me personally. It was about really at the end of the day, these things hurt the company, right? And and at the end, you know, that's what you and I and everybody should care the most about.
2: Absolutely, Jeff. I'm gonna we're gonna come back to the book. I'm going to ask one more question, but I want to focus on culture a little bit. We do have a lot of listeners who are involved in culture in their companies. One of the things that stood out in the book that people have commented on is are these weekends you did with your senior leaders and you invite them in, have dinner, spouse, partner as well, too. Why did you do that? And and wouldn't it have been more efficient? I mean, you write about it in the book. Wouldn't it have been more efficient to have a call, a meeting, you know, you had so many people that, you know, 180 people at the officer level and, and 600 at the, at sort of a, a senior leadership level. Why'd you do it?
0: Yeah, so I think everybody talks communication and culture, Gary, but, you know, and, and now I watch dozens of startup companies, most inner, you know, most relationships inside companies are transactional. They, they don't really build connection. And, and one of the things about leading a, a a big complicated company like GE is you need to learn how to connect at multiple levels
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know you need to connect at a 300,000 person level a 500 person level but you also need to connect one on one particularly with your senior leaders and what i found Gary is that is that by really going in depth you know, and literally, you know, you can't do it frequently, but doing it once a month we're doing it, you know, I did it almost, I did it 90 times. Wow. Not only was I connecting with that leader, but I could understand what was on the mind of people like them in detail, right? And and the conversations were always about them, about their business and about the company. And, and I always learned something about myself. I always learned something about the person I always learn something about strategy each and every time. And I just think we don't, leaders don't spend enough time deeply around the people that work with them. And I think unless you have depth, you don't have connection. If you don't have connection, you don't have culture. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. so I just think it's, it's one of those things where, you know, it's, it's, one of the things, Gary, you know, I work with like uh, startup founders, right? And they say, you know, Jeff, you don't understand. You know, this is a hundred-person company, a hundred person company. They said, Jeff, I have no time. I'm in meetings every minute of every day. And I said, dude, really? Everybody works for you. You have infinite time, but you're spending it in a completely the wrong way. If you're if right. you're the founder, and you're trapped in twenty-person meetings all day long, you're failing. Right you need you need to go with the sales leader you need to understand how the finance person thinks you need to recruit the next CFO you know things like that Gary and so yeah. I just think depth is one of the things that's missing in interactions today and it's particularly confounding in the pandemic right where you just can't even see body language and exactly. things like that at all yeah
1: yeah i i love this thought on on connections and by the way i love the book because i think What's a a little unusual is for someone like yourself who's run a major company, rather than this being a defense, I find it more of a, a reflection that I think really provides some great leadership lessons. But let's go back to connection. In the book, you write that to be a good CEO, your initiative should be interconnected, that it's the leader's job to connect the dots for everyone in the organization. How did you do this at GE? I mean, it's a big, complex global operation, even more more complex and bigger as you took over. I have to imagine, given the size and expanse of GE when you took over, that was not an easy task.
0: Yeah, you know, Mike, I think initially uh, one of the main parts of this is to not have many initiatives you know i think something i got better at as time went on was you know just because something's in your head it doesn't have to come out your mouth <laughs> and i find i find a lot of leaders fail because they just you know everything comes out of their mouth and and people say well is that a strategy or an initiative or priority or you know where does it fit and and so i tried to be really disciplined about the way that that i thought about things I tried to be a good storyteller in the way. So, in other words, I, I I wouldn't only talk about what we were doing, but kind of why we were doing it, and using stories to kind of amplify how how things fit together. And then, you know, Mike, I I had an opportunity. You know, I probably did five thousand employee meetings while, as a CEO. Wow. And but most, you know, sometimes it was about you know just reaching people,
1: mm-hmm. but a lot of
0: times it was to allow myself to rehearse. How an idea sounded by the way would come out my mouth, and and, and so you know, big complicated topics for a company like gee, like globalization.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, I I refined that story a thousand times, right? Each time I told it, I tried to make it simpler, I tried to make it more meaningful to the people that were engaged. But a lot of it was just practice of, of talking. So I think as communicators that are in your audience, you know, getting your getting your leaders to practice things, to refine the message. And when I say refine, Mike, I was always trying to make it simpler. I was never right. trying to make it more complicated.
1: I was card. always trying to
0: use fewer words, use better examples. And, and I think one of the things that's different between you know, politics and business is, like in politics, a politician gives a speech and their work is done, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> in the business, the speech is like the very beginning, and then there's like 99.9 percent of the work is getting things getting things done. So I, I found, and I always appreciated in others people that could communicate, you know, complicated ideas using simple words. It that worked with me. I always had vast appreciation for them.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting when we think about getting things done this past year has been almost an incredibly challenging time to get things done. I mean, there's studies that show that many employees are are feeling great stress as a result of the pandemic. There's certain pressures from working from home, which may involve taking care of family while they work. There's a lot of reporting of mental and behavioral issues coming out of all of this. What advice do you have for companies navigating this space for the first time and what advice do you have for keeping employees motivated?
0: You know, Mike, my, my real answer is I don't know because you know what we're living through is just so unique. I'd say having now a year to look back on, I'm extremely impressed with how digital tools have been used to communicate and, and, and really how much progress has been made across so many fronts given how difficult this has been but I guess the one piece of advice I would give is don't rush to conclusions yet. You know, so I, I see some companies saying, well, we're just going to stay virtual forever or yeah. "or we're going to just do pods of 50 or, you know, something like that. I, I think, Mike, it's that the, we're still in the middle of the book in terms of how work is going to change.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, because I, I, I do think that there is, while convenience has been huge, I think basically people now they brought work home. (laughs) There's there's not always good aspects to just (laughs) now never being able to go home. So there's no separation. I think if you're in the physical world, if you make products, a lot of the leaders I talk to just say, this has been a lot less productive than it used to be, that you Mm -hmm. just can't get as many things done. So my advice to everybody, Mike, is to understand that we don't know the answer yet in terms yeah. of what's the best way to motivate employees and stay productive and, and and manage you know their their families and things like that. And so we should experiment with things coming out of the pandemic and not rush to conclusions about yeah. what people really want to do in terms of how they work.
1: yeah you know, I'd like to follow up just very quickly because as as I look at your career, you certainly had, well, not a pandemic, you had lots of disrupted things that happened. I mean, you even, you even started, what was it, September 11, took place four days after you became CEO, and, and, and obviously you had an insurance business. I don't know if you had any employees involved, but I, I wonder if that is any kind of roadmap as to how how a CEO, how an organization should react to maybe times that they weren't necessarily looking forward to or didn't even understand what might happen.
0: Yeah, so what, you know, Gary and I talked about the main reason why I wrote the book, but the other reason why I wrote the book, Mike, was because I feel like in this era, all leadership is crisis leadership. And and the pandemic just reinforces that one more time. And, and I think as you as you think about what leadership traits or what leadership techniques work in the era we live in today, I, I think it's leaders have to absorb fear. You know, you 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 yep. can't be a, you can't be a provocateur <laughs> and just sit it on. You have to hold two truths at the same time that really terrible things can happen, but but good things can happen as well. And you need to embrace both. You need to understand that progress beats perfection because perfect isn't possible in this mm-hmm. era. You need to make decisions in a crowded room, you know, so people can watch why you're doing the things you do. But, but the last thing that, that pertains to the work, you know, kind of the work that you two guys do is you've got to communicate constantly. You, you know, what happens in a crisis is, you know, kind of like facts get reset, you know, in a crisis, the world changes. You're, you're painting on a blank canvas and you can't allow a vacuum to kind of, you know, erupt. You, you yeah. just, even some days where you say, hey, I don't know, there's no change today. But I think good leaders are going three times a week, updating, talking, saying what's going on. What do they observe? Not just about their company, but about the world. I don't think that changes in 2021 or 2022. I think those expectations are gonna continue with employees and their bosses.
2: yeah, so Jeff, I wanna build on that. It's an interesting point about communicating constantly. So I'm to turn to communications, the external side of it. I mean, you were fortunate enough during your time as CEO to have the best communications team in the world, the best communications leader. I could think I could say, Mike, Mike, you're shaking your head. Yeah. Yeah. No. yeah. Mike agrees, yeah. Yeah, Mike agrees, okay. Chris, how about you? You agree? Yeah, okay, thank you. So anyway, but I, I want to, on this point, because you write in the book that during the global financial crisis, when, you know, we were facing tough stories just about every day for months and months, you asked the comms team to focus on telling GE story like a press release every day. So how does that What's the philosophy behind that from a CEO standpoint?
1: Yeah, I think, Gary,
0: you know, the landscape has changed this as well, right? The the world that you guys live in, I I, I compare, like, in 2001, 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And basically, if you you look back at the coverage after 9-11, the media was cautious, they were respectful, there was one set of facts... You know, people basically stayed to the storyline. They, they trusted authority, things mm-hmm. like that, right? And then if you go to the financial crisis in just eight years, everything changed, right? You could say what you want. You could go online and you could make stuff up. You, you could You could constantly grab, you know, anybody could say anything basically about anybody. At that moment in time so you can't fight that you know like you're, you're not going to fight twitter or, or mm-hmm. you know, those those are seismic shifts, and it just is what it is so you know gary the philosophy was and you helped me build this was you know you when you can't stop bad news you have to drown it out with good news and so you have to kind of be willing to go out every day and tell your story your way with your ideas and your strategies. And you and if you just sit back and say, oh, they're, you know, if you're a CEO and you call your community and say, why are they picking on me all the time? You know, you, you're not going to get very far. You have to kind of get out there. You're, you're going to have bad news and you need good news. And, and you and I both came to the conclusion, Gary, that at that moment in time. That the, that the industry that was doing that from a communication standpoint was the political industry.
2: Yeah, exactly. Where yeah.
0: smear campaigns and, you know, leveraging the media and telling bad stories and, and all that was the state of the realm, right? Right. And so that's when you and I recruited some consultants and even hired some people from the political world because, you know, the frequency, right, Gary? What they understood was... The frequency of staying on message—that that you can't allow bad things to rest in the media all day long. You, you know, Mike, I I know where you're you're sitting now in Calgary. Mm-hmm. I would always, you know, because again, you know, G was a multi-business company. I would always tell my friends in Calgary, guys, look, you're letting others tell the story about the oil sands.
1: Mm-hmm. You, you gotta
0: you gotta we're we're importing oil from Venezuela. It's dirty. You know, <laughs> he, this guy hates us. And yet Canada, we love, and you're allowing, you know, and, and so, you know, they just weren't good at telling yeah, their story. So Gary, that's the point is, you yeah, frequency, see yeah. the validity went missing, and but you can't complain
2: about it. You have to find new strategies to fight it. And you were, you know, smart enough. We brought in David Plouffe from Obama and Steve Schmidt from McCain, and they helped us out. It was a great sort of bipartisan approach, and it yeah. was I mean, it really was a political campaign like atmosphere and continues to be. Yeah. And I think the smartest companies from a communication standpoint have, have recognized that. So uh, they were both incredibly helpful to us and our team and moving through like the pandemic, a crisis that lingered for months in months and months. One of the things, Jeff, if you don't mind me saying it, that you talk about in the book, but you, I can remember you mentioning to me about that period from a leadership standpoint was as difficult as it was and as tiring as it was, you never were gonna let people see you down, right? Because there were some days when you wanted to- Yeah. Because you know, <laughs> it was tough. Just tell us about that thinking.
0: Well, you know, the difference, Gary, like in the pandemic, the pandemic hit, has hit everybody. Right. in every part of the world. Good point. And maybe maybe there is a sense, you know, among Americans or maybe globally that, let's say the Chinese caused it, right? So mm-hmm. so they're the culprit. During the financial crisis, if you were in financial services, not just were you trying to save your company, but you were the enemy, mm-hmm. right? You You were, and so you needed not just to be making decisions that help preserve your franchise, but you needed to be a pep rally. You needed to lead a pep rally every day, right? And if- yeah if you walked into a room as a a leader and just said, guys, you'll never believe how screwed we are right now. (laughs) (laughs) And 300,000 people said, oh, where's the door? Let's let's go, you know? And so at at that moment in time, not just did we have GE Capital, but we had to reinvest in aircraft engines. We had to reinvest in healthcare. We had all these other businesses that we had to preserve and protect and continue exactly. to grow. And and that that's, again, I think one of the things I write about in the book is this principle of showing up when right. the chips are down, right? That leaders, even when you don't know what to say, even when things are really bad, and even sometimes when you've made the mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. When, when you actually have done a lot of things wrong, you, you have to have the courage to show up and, and let your team see you and see your accountability, your transparency, you know, things like that, Gary. So the other thing about the financial crisis, Gary, I've talked a lot about over the last month or so, you know, I was surrounded by people I trusted inside the company, you and Keith and Mike Neal and people like that, uh, Beth Comstock, others. And I think even when things are lousy, if you're surrounded by people you trust, you never feel quite that bad, right? right? And, And one of the mistakes I made, over my time was every now and then I would l- allow people that I didn't trust to to say, <laughs> you know, Kurt, people have asked me the question, like, you have to be heartbroken that people you trusted let you down. I said, you know what? People I trusted never let me down. I'm disappointed in myself because I let people I didn't trust let me
1: down. <laughs> I should have known better. And I think that's the <laughs> worst.
0: <laughs> that's it's a mistake easy. a lot of leaders make is that they lower their standards sometimes. About people, and that never works.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. it's a great point, Jeff. You know, resilience is really an undervalued leadership quality. Yeah, right? yeah. Particularly yeah.
1: today. Well, and it's interesting to hear your reflections. I mean, it, just in the last few minutes, you, you reflected on trust and politics, the financial crisis, and what that meant for your portfolio mix, the nature of the media in 2001 versus today. And I've heard you say in other interviews that the one, one of the reasons that you wrote Hot Seat is that management today is different. It's, it's essentially crisis management. How does that change the role of the chief executive officer and his or her interaction with the communications team?
0: Yeah, look, I think the communications team in, a, in times of volatility, you know, not that they're ever unimportant, but I just think it increases the role of their importance because both inside the company and outside the company, there's just a vast need for more information. And, you know, Mike, I, I'd say like most times when I work with Gary or, or who, whoever I work with, like most CEOs know what to say. You know, Mike, most, most leaders know what to say. They don't know when to say it, how to say it, and who to say it to. So I think, I think during a crisis, the communicator needs to have judgment, a check and balance on, you know, not what to say, but don't say that today, say it tomorrow, or don't say it this way, say it that way, right? And, 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 or whether to say, it. let's just not say that today, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think this, this, this this combination of whether to say something how to say it and when to say it during a crisis those all become you know, amplified. You know look when the news is good and you beat your earnings estimate you can basically chant that right you That's could right. you can do it in iambic pentameter it doesn't really matter that much right? <laughs> but when you don't know if you're going to you're gonna, you're going to take away guidance you don't know what's going to happen you have no idea what the pandemic that requires judgment And I think that's when you really need a communicator to be able to push back and and not tell you what to say, but but give you the nuance about how to get it done.
1: Yeah, talking about communicators, I can't let this opportunity go. And I have to ask you this question. In a story in the book around the global financial crisis, you write that our buddy here, Gary Scheffer looks so nervous at times that he was capable of biting a pencil in half. Now, let me ask you what caused that stress?
0: Well, Gary, so Gary was kind of like, during the financial crisis, uh, uh, who was uh, Don Quixote's assistant, Gary? That was a uh, Poncho... Uh, yeah, Poncho oh, Sanzo. Poncho Sanzo. So so Gary was Poncho Sanzo. I was like Don Pancho. Quixote and Gary was writing, writing next to me around the world. We were together. So I got a chance to spend a, you know, like any crisis, I got a chance to spend a lot of time. But, you know, Mike, it's hard to describe. I, I think the book tried to do this, but you know, these were high stakes. These were really high stakes, and we were, we were kind of on an island of one, and so we were facing things uniquely, right, that other people weren't facing. I remember one time there was a day in March of two thousand and nine. And our CFO, Keith Sharon, was going to go on for an hour with David Faber on CNBC. Yeah. And I was doing the JP Morgan CEO conference. Okay. And both Keith and I wanted to cancel. <laughs> and, and you know, the stock was plummeting and the credit default Swats were blowing out. And I remember the three of us sitting in my conference room, you know, the night before, Gary, Keith, and I just kind of going through, you know, like, a you know QA and things like over that over and
2: over and over yeah
0: but just yeah. also understanding what's what was at stake yeah. right and so that's when you when you see your communications guy eat his pencil <laughs> is a moment is a moment <laughs> like that because you know Mike, it was just high stakes it wasn't like yeah I, I can't even compare anything in the pandemic. This was just you know you yeah. waiting
2: for your company.
1: Well it was existential for you guys it was right? existential
2: exactly yeah. yeah and Mike I look like that all the time. unfortunately it's just who I am you know (laughs) there you go (laughs) so Jeff I want to stick with crisis communications because it's such a important part of the book and relevant to today so I always remember when when we ran into these things uh, particularly in Fukushima but in other crises too you, you know you sent me down to down to the nuclear business with the instruction when that earthquake and tsunami and then nuclear meltdowns happened, Gary, no self-inflicted wounds. It was, and you gave me that, you know, sort of advice in in other situations. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so Gary, I think
0: like what happened in Fukushima, it's not unlike, you know, the pandemic or things like that, which was, it was a crisis of epic proportions, but nobody, you know, because of the way a crisis like that works, nobody knew what was going on, right. right? Like there were helicopters, CNN and things like that would be filming it, but nobody could get on the site for 30 days. So, so, you know, so little was known. And, and at that moment in time, you know, there would be, you know, like retired G employees would go on morning Joe and they would, they would get interviewed for like 45 minutes. And these were people that hadn't worked for the company for 25 years yeah, or yeah. gotten fired or something like that. And so you had this swirl of misinformation and in a crisis like that you know what I wanted you to do was to be extremely disciplined about you know what we said or didn't say that if we didn't know we said we didn't know exactly but not to not to allow there to be false impressions or or information we weren't sure of. And, and, you know, as a result, I think we managed through that kind of with you in the lead. I I remember Gary, again, this was the like March of 2011. Right. Mike, you'll appreciate this. Well, this was
1: also happening like a year after Deepwater Horizon too. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: We had a board call and we had to give them an update on two things, Fukushima (laughs) disaster, and the New York Times had written a really devastating article about our tax strategy. Devastating. And I was leading President Obama's Jobs and Competitiveness Council. And so Doesn't we get better than hour, that, it?
1: We Had a one-hour
0: <laughs> board call, and Gary was like 50 minutes of it. And I've just for the people out there, not not to say anything bad, but if you're on a if your communications lead is 90 percent of your board meeting something really shitty is happening. <laughs> something really bad is underway. And Gary just so professionally kind of went down. Here's what's going on. Here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what happened. Here's what we know. Here's what we're going to do. And I remember getting Shelly Lazarus, who was a really great communicator herself, pinged me after the meeting and said, I feel so much better. Please tell Gary you did a good job, You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, when you're, when you're in a crisis, frequently the board would just as soon talk to the lead communicator as the CFO or the, or other people that are, that are are working with you. And I think that's, you know, there's just, I think guys, there's just an aura of transparency around when you're communicating, you know, when the person that's on the front line with the media is actually talking internally, there's an aura of a transparency that the board gets you know things aren't being spun they're being kind of put out there as as here's where we are and what we're doing that i think people that have a governance role have, have a big appreciation for
2: yeah well that's the opportunity you gave us and deirdre latour and you know others jeff it's so important to the communicator to have those relationships too with the board it's one way yeah. i was going to ask you how do you get the highest value out of your team but that's certainly one of the ways right yeah, no, I think I think
0: it's that, and again, like I I come back to it's just look as being a CEO is a communications job. It, it is, you know it's such an important part of the job. Yeah, more than ever. And I think to a certain extent, your communications team is a mirror. You know, they you 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 want to you know you you sing in front of the mirror to s- listen to how it sounds. You, there's a few flat notes, you know, and they come back and say you're off key here. The harmony sounds bad, but You know, no no leader, I don't think any leader ever kind of, you know, maybe like, like, I always mastered, I always, I always like completely marveled at President Obama's ability to talk extremely logically in paragraphs almost. Yeah, exactly. So he may be like the one in a million communicator whose mind is so logical and articulate that you can communicate, but most of us aren't that good. Yeah. So most of us, it's about practice, 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 refinement, simplifying, using words that, you know, one of the things that I was always taught on guys in terms of how I communicated, is I only used words that were in my sphere. You know, in other words, I never tried to, I I try to use simple phrases that people could understand. I I never exercised my vocabulary, you know, different (laughs) leaders have different kind of (laughs) things they try to do, but I always marveled at President Obama, even in you know, less formal settings, was just so incredibly articulate and he could move people with right. that. Most of us aren't that good.
1: Yeah, but my guess is he probably, to your earlier point, like any really good leader, you know, is practicing that as well. In fact, I, I know very few really good leaders who don't have some elements of doubt And who, you know, are constantly testing and pushing themselves in order to get better. But one of the things that is interesting to me, which seems to be a transitioning role for CEOs and large corporations, is how CEOs and organizations like a GE or like some of the companies I work for, how they're being prompted to take positions on social issues, such as issues of race, economic inequality, human rights. How should organizations in your mind tackle these issues and when should companies speak out and when should they stay quiet?
0: You know, Mike, it's a great, great, great question. I I have to say I'm kind of humbled by the challenge of what modern CEOs have to do. I I think it's incredibly complicated world we live in now. I think i give you a couple ways to think about it. One, it helps if you've actually done good work. You know, in other words, if you have done a good job at diversity and you speak out, people follow. If you haven't done a good job at diversity and you speak out, it's, it may make you feel better and it, and it may be good in the totality, but people don't follow you. People don't listen. You know, I remember when President Trump put on the Muslim travel ban, I spoke out, very actively about that, but I was credible. You know, in, in other words, we probably had 30,000 Muslims that worked at GE. Yeah, like, I, I was well-known in the Middle East. I, I was well-known- So in there Washington. was connective tissue. I, uh, there was connective tissue. And so when I spoke out, I could speak out from a position of strength, right? You know, when somebody in tech, I live in San Francisco now, when somebody in tech speaks out about why there aren't more African-Americans in leadership, they're just not credible because they have done a bad job, right? And so I think that's that's number one. Uh, number two, you have to believe it kind of personally and passionately in order to convey your message. Uh, one of my heroes has always been Ken Frazier at Merck. Mm-hmm. He he stood up after the Charlottesville, you know, kind of riot uniquely, mm-hmm. individually.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. And, and he made all the difference because of his courage and the fact that he stood out. And the last thing I'd say is is you earn the right to speak on behalf of your company if you've got the trust of the people in, in your company. In other words, if you've been a good leader, a good boss, if you've invested in them, then they'll ride with you to take a stand even once they don't agree with right? And and so I'd say those three things are really most important. Do we need corporations to speak out? Sure we do. I mean, change has to, change has to happen companies need to do their part but what we're really best at what we really should be best at is actually taking actions when the government can't mm-hmm. and so you know when it comes for instance mike to diversity my first diversity training was 1985.
1: Yeah.
0: the fact that there's not more progress we can't blame anybody for that really and companies can move the needle there much faster than the government can so our actions speak louder than words so credibility personal passion, build trust inside your organization so you can use that to drive change. But you know, change has to happen and I'm glad that companies are speaking up.
1: Yeah, you know, trust and truth are like two big messages out of your book, Hot Seat. And you assert a truth about the GE story. What I was intrigued by though, is you, you have this formula in the book And the formula reads truth equals facts plus context. What did you mean by that? You know, Mike, so uh, let's tell a story. Let's pick a
0: story from the book that everybody's read about. The Alstom acquisition didn't work, okay? Now, the context around the acquisition was it was reviewed 25 times. It was heavily competed. All of our competitors wanted to buy it. It It had a strategy that made sense and was approved by the board and our execution was terrible, okay? That's the fact and the context, and that's the truth. Now, Mm -hmm. if you just throw it out there, also it doesn't work, and people said it was jammed down their throat and things like that, that's (laughs) no context, you know? (laughs) And so if you don't have the context, I think what happened in our company was we took the wrong remedial steps to fix the problem, right? In order to fix the problem, we needed to replace the leadership team and put in people that knew what they were doing right in in the industry but we didn't do that we allowed a a bad an incorrect narrative to exist so I, i think it's important that ceos kind of understand the totality of what's happened not for the storytelling aspect but to get the right remedial action yeah and what what should be fixed you know to kind of make it go on keystone pipeline right right nobody follows nobody sits there and says what president biden did was a smart thing and I believe in climate change. Really, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's tens that tens of thousands of miles of pipeline in the U.S. today, mm-hmm. just like Keystone, yeah. right? So what the industry did is they 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 allowed a false context to be portrayed over a decade around the project, yeah, and yeah. around the project, and that in the end has cost you mm-hmm. know people money and jobs and things like that.
1: Yeah, as opposed to looking at what what is the actual demand and. what are the the alternatives if the demand exists? Are you gonna start transporting this by by truck and rail, which have other implications for the environment that you're actually using fuel to transport fuel?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, we, uh, Um, Gary, we're we're going, Mike, we, PCBs in the Hudson's, look, PCBs were studied for 25 years. It's not a carcinogen, right? Yeah. It, It just, you know, people that stood in vats of PCBs for twenty five years lived to be ninety seven years old. It didn't matter. Right? Yeah, the context yeah. was, you know, yeah. this was an environmental cause. Yeah. We were on the wrong side of it. You know, we 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 never understood. We we understood the facts. Yeah. We didn't understand the context, and therefore, we didn't understand the truth. Well,
1: well, that's why I like yeah. the formula that you present because it's also interesting from the context of. So, I mean, GE used to own NBC. Early in my career, my first job as a chief communications officer, worked for a telecommunications company that also had a cable business. And in that industry for years, they used to talk about content being king. But I think actually for CEOs and for CCOs, context is king.
2: Yeah, <laughs> particularly today in a complicated world. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jeff, last question. And one and of the things, uh, honestly, that I'm so proud to have been associated with this book is how honest it is, and, and 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 how helpful it it is to other people, leaders particularly, and but more so from your and my perspective, people have given their lives, much of their adult lives, even to the point of you getting a tattoo, which we won't go into, <laughs> everywhere, but. Another part of the book that is just really so good is that you don't just talk about what happened or why you did what you did, but how you were feeling about it, which I think is important for leaders to understand. So watching GE over the past few years as it's had some troubles since you left. How have you felt a- a- about all of that?
0: You know, Gary. For me, geez, personal. You know, my dad. My dad worked at the company. I worked my entire professional career uh, at the company. So I, I, I would be lying if I didn't say I was just profoundly sad. Mm-hmm. You know, if if I had to, if I had to capture it in one word, it was sad. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about the people I worked with or hope that the outcome. Ultimately looks great, which I'm convinced it will. Mm -hmm. I guess the final lesson of the book, Gary, is, you know, it's the these journeys are individual and they last a long time. These leadership journeys.
2: Yeah.
0: And in my leadership journey, things didn't always work the way I wanted them to, but I never quit. I, I never I never let other people define me, even while I could be reflective on what i what I did right and what I did wrong. I, I think what's important for leaders is just not to not to quit. Mm. And so I think in my sadness, I've tried to reinvent myself, make contributions to students and CEOs and and I think that, you know, who knows if I can call it a lesson, but at <laughs> least you're going to read about it in the book. Well, so. to
2: show up, your point yeah. about showing up is so powerful. And I'm, I'm not going to, people know where I stand on you and the company, but I just want to say I was proud every day I worked for GE and proud every day I worked for you and still am. So well, Gary, thanks. thanks.
0: And, and one of the best things, if not the best thing of the book has been the reconnecting with hundreds of GE yes. people who have reached out. And that is so special to me.
2: Terrific. The book is Hot Seat, What I Learned Leading a Great American Company. And the author is Jeff Immelt, former CEO of GE. Jeff, thanks for being on the cross. Thanks,
0: guys. Thanks, Alrighty. Good
2: to see you again, Mike.
1: See you, Gary. Good to see you. Take care.
0: See you, Chris. Thanks, Enjoy guys. the weather.
2: Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.